Well, please turn with me in God's word to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles in chapter 14. 1 Chronicles chapter 14, let's hear God's word. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons, and carpenters to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. David took more wives in Jerusalem. David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibha, Elishua, Elpalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Beliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it. And went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, go up and I will give them into your hand. And he went up to Baal-perazim and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And they left their gods there. And David gave command and they were burned. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Go around. And come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded him. And they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Giza. And the fame of David went out into all the lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So reads God's word this morning. I spoke to Stephen briefly in the week and I said, will there be a clock so I can keep an eye on the time? He says, there's one to your right. You'll be able to catch it with the corner of your eye. And I thought, I'll never catch a, a clock with the corner of my eye. Even I might catch that one. This is a wonderful chapter. It's a chapter that's often been preached, and I've heard people preach on this, and they've, they've taken particularly that last section about hearing the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, and it's been interpreted in, frankly, what I consider the most fantastical manner. And the most incredible things have been read into the text. Now, that's called eisegesis. That's taking what I want to find there and putting it in the text. I trust by God's grace we will go the other way and come to the text and learn out of the text, exegesis. To take out of the text what God would have us learn 
this morning. Because this is a chapter that ought to cause us to pause and to consider whether we individually and we as God's people collectively are living as the Lord has commanded us. And I think in our own current day and age, that's a vital question. Each generation seems to have new pressures put upon it. I've now got to that stage of life when I can honestly turn around and say, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. The pressures now upon young people to mold their thinking, I think, are worse now in our society across the West than they have been in living memory. So what does this passage have to do to teach us? Well, let's come to God's word. First, there's, well, yes and no. Yes and no. There's a yes and no in the start of David's reign as it's described here in this 14th chapter. David, of course, has already been anointed king and uh, he has taken Jerusalem and they've brought the ark, but only so far. It's currently outside of Jerusalem in the house of Obed-Edom. And then we get these first five verses. Now in verses one and two, we have a yes. The first verse describes messengers coming from Hiram, king of Tyre, up there on the north coast, uh, on the north coast of Canaan. They come with these great rich gifts for David. Uh, they are come to build him a palace. That's what every king needs, is a palace. It's uh, our American brothers call today Reformation Day. Well, Reformation Day in the early days uh, in England when the gospel light was just trickling in from the continent, uh, you had the chancellor who was Cardinal Wolsey. He built himself a tremendous palace. Well, unfortunately for him, Henry VIII was the king. Then very shortly became Henry's palace, Hampton Court Palace. And uh, poor old Wolsey, well... He would lose his position of influence and power and ultimately the gospel would triumph. Every king then needs a palace. David needed a palace and Hiram, king of Tyre, sends these gifts to build him a palace. And then we are told, verse 2, David knew. It's at that point it seems to sink in that David is not just anointed king, not just able to tell the Israelites what they're going to do, but now he is established as king. Others outside the kingdom see him as king. And his power is now established so that others are acknowledging his position. And we're told his kingdom is highly exalted. Not for David's sake. But for the sake of his people, Israel. In other words, David and his kingdom are exalted for God's people. Not for the man. Not for the individual. Now I say this as someone as a Baptist before a Presbyterian congregation this morning. We miss so often, don't we, the covenant. And here it is. It is God's covenantal people who are blessed through David being established. That is as it is still today. It is the sovereign God who showers his covenantal people with blessings. He blesses us, doesn't he, with his presence in collective worship. Is there anyone here this morning who could put their hand up and say, yes, I deserve the presence of God. The only thing we deserve is the presence of his wrath and judgment. But doesn't he bless us with his presence? We're coming to the table. We pray that we will know his presence around that. And we will be enabled to come collectively and give him thanks. Well, we know his collective presence in evangelism. We know his collective presence in prayer. 
And it's really important to remember one thing. If the Lord blesses you, if the Lord gives you and your particular ministry a prominence, it is of the Lord. You are only being given that blessing, that prominence, to bless his people. I think there is a grave danger in the church, and this is something that has gone on for many centuries. It's nothing new. We like to raise up heroes of the faith, don't we? I'm as guilty as the next. We like to raise men up and hold them up as really something. And we forget that God has only given them to his people to bless and lift up his people. So if the Lord blesses you, or you come across someone who seems to have a more prominent position, that's because the Lord is blessing you and his people through them. That's what was happening here in the life of David. So in the ministry of a particular local fellowship, if that ministry is blessed, and you hear of places, there's a a dear brother up in Derby, and over a number of years he, he commented how the Lord was blessing the ministry, and yet he said, I've done nothing new. I'm doing the same now as I've done for many years. We haven't changed the way we worship. I haven't changed how I preach, and yet the Lord is blessed. That's about the Lord blessing his people, and if the Lord blesses you, then give him the praise. Because he is raising you up as his covenant people to the glory and praise of his name. There's no room then for personal pride in the work of the Lord. You and I, we are to labor faithfully together and seek only his glory. You are what you are by the grace of God. And your labor is blessed for the glory of God and the sake of his people. So yes, David, David is doing well. But then comes verse 3. And we have a very firm no. And in fact, if you go back to the the parallel passages in 2 Samuel, it's even more firmly a no there, frankly, in its context. And you go back to to the opening chapters of 1 Chronicles, and it's an even firmer no. The writer of Holy Scripture here is giving us uh, no option but to realize that David was way out of line. Yes, David is God's man. He's appointed and he's established as king, even in the eyes of others around, and he's there to bless God's people. But sadly, he begins to behave like pagan kings. He takes more wives in Jerusalem. Now, if we had read from the beginning of Chronicles, you would know he already had multiple wives. He had already sinned, and now he takes even more. So to the list of earlier sons, there's this other list of sons now. And yet in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, when the Lord had told his people when they came into the land, he would give them a king. He said, that king shall neither multiply wives for himself. David had just done that. Let his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. What would happen in the life of David and his family? How many of his sons and children would fall into sin? Solomon built the temple. His son who followed him on the throne. What would happen? He would take even more wives following his father's example. Fathers, what example are you setting? He would follow his father's example and go further down that sinful road. And his heart would be turned away and he would become an extremely wealthy Man, read his testimony in in Ecclesiastes. 
And yet Deuteronomy 17.17, that the king should not multiply wives, comes directly from Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Let me emphasize that again. We tend to think of it as the other way around. A man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Not the wife shall leave her mother and father. The call is here for the man to be head of his household. The man then is to leave mother and father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Not multiple men and multiple women or any combination in between. David was breaking the law of God with regard to marriage and that right on the footsteps of blessing comes sin. I would like to find a way to excuse David, but scripture does not allow me to. And if anyone here tries to excuse David, they are guilty of reading it into the text, not coming out of the text. This text presupposes you know Deuteronomy 17.17. It presupposes you know Genesis 2.24. In other words, it tells you that you as a child of God must know the word of God. And not just be familiar with bits of it. How many of us start at the beginning of a new year? We're, we're, we're going to be into November tomorrow. I hate to tell you, two months time will be January the 1st in, a, in a two months and a day. That's a horrifying thought, isn't it? We'll be in 2022. Where did 1984 go? I don't know. Perhaps you'll say, well, I'm going I'm to start reading through the Bible. We'll get through Genesis. Lots of it's excited. We'll get into Exodus. We'll struggle a little bit in the later chapters, but eventually we'll get there. Then you start on Leviticus. And if you do really well, really, really well, you might get as far as chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. I wonder how many of us will get as far as chapter 26. Never mind end the book. But we need to be familiar with all of God's word. We need to be obedient to all of God's word. We need to know Leviticus so we can understand the Gospels, by the way. You need to know the laws so you can see what laws in the New Testament are established. You and I, we need to be those who obey all of God's word. And when we break the law of God, we disobey the word of God. We bring heartache into our relationship with God. We certainly bring heartache and damage into our own family life. And we bring that into our daily circle. And we will most certainly, ultimately bring it into the family of God. You know, one of the most hurtful things to a pastor and elder who stands at the front week after week after week is to see that brother or sister gradually slipping away and despite all the counseling, all the urging, all the preaching, all the prayer, they just seem to get colder and colder and fade and fade. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And to see how it hurts other Christians. And if we disobey God's word, we will bring that heartache into the heart of God's family there's no excuse in David and therefore there's no excuse in our culture today here in this country we had Whitcliffe on the continent they had Jan Hus well predating the days of the reformation the church has always had the writings of Augustine of Hippo who very clearly taught the the doctrine of justification by faith alone as Western nations, we have no excuse. And yet as a society, we have taken today marriage and we have twisted it and 
bent it and broken it and made it meaningless. At least that's what the world has done. But God is clear. Marriage is one man and one woman and that in lifelong covenant before him. You cannot go to a passage like this to justify changing that and say, well, it was okay for David. No, it wasn't okay for David. And if you read this in context, it was never okay for David and it's not okay for you. You see, you don't go to the historical passages to justify sin. You go to the teaching passages and to the prophetic passages and you use them to teach you what the historical passages are saying. You do it the other way around. You are reading into scripture again. And that's a very dangerous place to come to. You want to understand 1 Chronicles? Then read through Genesis through to Deuteronomy. You want to understand Acts? Then read the letters of Paul and Peter and John and Jude. There's no excuse in sin. No clever argument will stand before God. His word is clear. Come to it aright. That's why you must pray for your elders. Those men who teach you. That they will remain faithful to this word. Give God thanks for them. And pray for them. They are in the front of the battle. Believe me, the study when you are coming to study God's word can be a real battle. I can say a bit more freely what... Stephen and Falco perhaps would struggle to say. But I'll tell you, sometimes the study can be a struggle. When you close that door and it's you and God's word and your commentaries and your lexicons and suddenly the temptations to do 10,000 other things and your thoughts will flit here, there and everywhere. Pray for them. There are yet more battles to be fought though. I need to keep an eye on time. There are more battles to be fought here. Because as you come into verse 8, the Philistines were not at all happy about David being king. They're anything but happy. So they gather their army for war. The five lords of the Philistines come together and they gather that great Iron Age army together. Now, David was the appointed king. He was the established king of Israel. He was beginning to be raised up in the eyes of the nations around. He was the cause of Israel being exalted. But he couldn't relax. That wasn't job done. In fact, later on you find when David relaxes, what happens? Further sin. Adultery. Conniving in murder. Lying before the prophet of the Lord and therefore in the, in the presence of God. No, this wasn't job done. This wasn't time to relax. There were enemies to fight and an army to lead. And so verse 8 tells us that David said, uh, David said he heard of it and he went out against them. You see, David knew at this point at least where his responsibility lay. For all his failings in other ways, he knew that he had to serve the Lord. And so he leads the army of Israel out to battle. Very simple application. Christian, at no point can you kick back and say it's done. You can't relax and say, well, I've got to that stage of life. I can relax. I've heard people say that. I've done the youth group for 25 years. I've done my time. It's time for somebody else. Now, it may be time to train somebody else, but it doesn't mean it's time for you to kick back and relax. It may be time for you to move on to other things. It may be time for you to stay there. And to supervise and encourage and build on that work alongside others and let them gradually take over the main role. We never reach the summit, you see, in the Christian life. And so we can just switch off and coast along. 
When it's nice and warm, I go out on the bicycle, cycling sometimes. And you know, I hate going uphill. I really, really hate going uphill. Last summer, my son and I, we cycled from Wolverhampton out to uh, Cosford. It's not such a big ride. It's about 15, 16 miles, I guess. And we cycled out, and it wasn't so bad. The first little bit uphill, we were fresh. And then pretty much from a couple of miles outside of Wolverhampton, it's almost all downhill to Cosford. That was lovely. You could, you could almost kick back, take your feet off the pedals, and before you know it, you're down in Old Brighton, and, and off you go. But then we got to Cosford, and we had to turn around, and we decided to go back by the main road. Oh, boy. Well, I'm in my 50s. He's in his early 20s. You can guess who got home first. No, it wasn't me. Because it's almost all uphill from RAF Cosmo by the main road back to Wolverhampton. Just because you reach the summit, all that means is you're going to go downhill and there's going to be another hill to climb. And then another hill to climb and another hill to climb. Christian, that's the Christian life. It was relaxation the last day that would lead David to sin. But here we see him serving the Lord faithfully. And we too must be ready to stand up and to serve the Lord. To be counted in his service at every stage of life. You see, the enemy of our soul, Satan, he doesn't rest. He didn't rest in the life of Job. It wasn't enough to attack Job once. He had to do it over and over and over again. And so he will be with us. The more faithfully you seek to follow the Lord, the more you seek to live for him and serve him, the more he will try and draw you off. Make you relax. Switch off. If you are asleep on the battlefield, he will leave you alone. He will leave you alone. But if you would serve the Lord, there will be more battles to fight. Right to the last day of your life. Read Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read, read it, read it. Read it. Towards the end of their journey, Christian and hopeful still faced perils. They were on the brink of the river. They would shortly cross over to the celestial city and yet they faced problems. The temptation to fall asleep, to go aside following those who seemed to be good but ended up being deceivers. There's no relaxation. We are soldiers of Christ. We need constantly to put on the armor of God or we will slip and fall out of obedience and service. So Christian, it's time to get up. And to keep on fighting those battles. To do it privately in your own life. To do it in your family life. Have you noticed how complicated our family lives can become? How easily we don't make time for things like reading scripture together. Praying together. Do you notice how easily we make time though for film night? And for outings out? And for doing the extra overtime so we're not there? Fight those same battles in work. Fight those same battles in church. Serve alongside your brothers and sisters. You see, the church, the church is, in one sense, to be like the scrum in a rugby team. You've got eight men in there, and you need all eight men to push. It's no good, the second row saying, it's not our turn to push today. Because all that's going to happen is the other scrum is going to walk straight over you. The church is to be like that. We all push together. 
And the powerhouse is the Lord himself by the Spirit. So fight those battles, my brothers and sisters. And then finally, I want us to see how David relied on the Lord. Because David's approach here to warfare is very simple. He relies on the Lord. There's nothing complicated in the mind of David. The Philistines make this raid through the valley of Rephaim. This is a pretty rocky, barren, nasty valley that leads up to Jerusalem from the edge of the Philistine lands. And we're told that they made this raid in verse 9. His first response in verse 10 is to inquire of the Lord. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? What shall I do, Lord? What should I do? And David only went and fought the Philistines when the Lord assured him, I'll give you the victory. Now we haven't got time this morning to look at how complete that victory was. But verse 12 tells us, so complete was the victory that the Philistines left their idols and ran off and David and his men burned them. That's obedience to the law. There should be no idols found amongst my people in Israel. As a result, the place was called Baal Perazim, master of breakthroughs. But the Philistines didn't give up. They were a well-organized bunch, and as I say, they were an Iron Age army. The army of Israel was barely crawling out of the Bronze Age by comparison. Oh, it was strengthened, and it had been strengthened throughout Saul's days. But man for man, there was no competition. The Philistines should have won hands down. Verse 13 describes their second attack. Again, they come through the valley of Rephidim. Now, many might have been tempted. I might have been tempted. You might have been tempted. We've beaten them once. Let's go do it again. Up and at them, boys. Not David. Again. Verse 14. He inquires of God, and God said, You shall not go up after them. I wonder how he felt at that. Who? I'm not to go up after them? The Lord says no, but this time sends men, send men around through some trees. And when you hear the sound of troops marching in those trees, then you engage the Philistines. Why? Because you know, I will have gone before you. I will have gone before you. In the great exodus, it's the same thing. Why did the Red Sea open? Because Moses struck it? Or because the breath of God was upon it? God went before his people. And throughout all their journeys, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, God was before his people. And here God says, I will go before you. I will give you the victory. This was to be done in the strength and the power of the Lord. David obeyed. And we are told, verse 16, they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Giza. It was a tremendous victory. You see, David, we are told here, did as God commanded. Verse 16. He did as God commanded. That was the way of success. It wasn't by having high-level meetings with clever strategies. It wasn't by sitting down and saying, well, let's study Philistine techniques. Let's put ourselves through, through the, uh, the, the, the local Israeli college of military studies. No. He did as God commanded. David may have been king, but Yahweh was sovereign. And it was the Lord he obeyed. 
That's why, verse 17, that's why the fame of David went out into all the lands. That's why the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. Because David relied on the Lord and obeyed the Lord, the Lord made the surrounding nations fear him. Think of it. The fear of God through David fell on the nations. The fear of God through David fell on the nations. When I walked in, I, I joked that I've never preached faith since Stephen Hawking before. Oh, David Attenborough, come to that. But they do worry us a little bit, don't they? They're very clever men, aren't they? They have an understanding of science. Well, I, I dropped science when I was 13, so what, my understanding of science is very small. But they have an understanding of science that, that defeats most of us, don't they? But if we are obeying the Lord, it's not our ability, it's in our wisdom and our understanding. It is the Lord who will bring the fear of himself through us on those that seem to be powerful. Read 1 Corinthians 1. It's not the great, it's not the mighty, it's not the rich, it's not the powerful, it's not the wise of this world. Where are they? All shown to be weak, futile, and foolish before the wisdom of God. You see, there's only one right way to live, and that's doing as God commands you. And yes, that would look slightly different for David than for you and I here. I don't suppose for a moment that uh, Stephen and Falco are going to come back next Sunday and say, okay, brothers, sisters, I want you in a week's time to come with sharpened swords and helmets, and we're going to go out and we're going to attack everybody who's not a Christian in this area. I don't suppose that's going to be the case at all. In fact, I know it's not going to be the case. But the principle still stands. The same principle that governed David's actions here, governed his people throughout history, governed his people in the New Testament period, and it still governs us today. We are to obey the Lord. Do all that you do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 If you love me, keep my word. We are to obey him. We are to live and to speak and to serve and to think and have our attitudes only as the Lord commands us in scripture. That's where it comes from. That's to be true in your personal and your family life. Let me read you some verses of scripture. Most of these come from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says this. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I know many get stuck there, but just go a few words on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're a husband here today and that doesn't hurt you, then you're asleep in your seat. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
what if you're not a husband or a wife? You're submitting and loving. Children. Children amongst us. You're not too young. Obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. You don't kick out and rebel against them and say, well, all my mates have got this, all my friends are doing that. No, you obey your parents. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. D.L. Moody once put it this way. Don't often quote Moody, but I think he was right. He said, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. That's why husbands and wives should love and submit to one another. It's to be a giving up to and a giving up for the other. And that comes from both sides. If you're married here, your relationship is so fundamental to the purposes and commands of God in Scripture. That if your relationship isn't right, nothing else is going to be right that comes from it. Nothing. It's like us many years ago when we still went camping. We went to my hometown to the country park and we started to pitch the tent and it was a chalet tent. So it took quite a while and it was a sixth berth one, so it was quite big. And we got it up and then I started trying to hit the tent pegs into the ground. And we had a variety and some of them were the flimsy kind. I started with them and they just bent. So I got the hard ones out. And I couldn't hit it in the ground. So eventually, my wife and myself had to get inside this tent, pick this whacking great chalet tent up, and walk it blind across the camping ground. The reason we couldn't put it into the ground is because that campground was built on an old colliery. And we just tried to pitch it right on top of a solid piece of iron. There was no way we were getting through it without a drill. If the ground isn't right, if your marriage isn't right, Wives, if you're not submitting. Husbands, if you're not loving. Everything else will fall to the ground. If you aren't right in your marriage, you are failing in your covenant vow before the Lord. Husbands, therefore, I challenge you particularly. Are you loving as Christ loved the church? He died to save us. We're going to remember that in a moment. That's the measure of our love. Now, all of this is very sobering. Ephesians 5 into, into Ephesians 6 is very sobering reading. Especially note, fathers. The role of men and of fathers in our modern society has been dreadfully diminished. But notice, in God's word, it is fathers who are responsible for the spiritual education of their children. It is fathers who are responsible before God for the upbringing of the child. It's not the church... The church is not responsible for how your children are brought up. The church is not responsible that your children are taught scripture. The church is not responsible for teaching your child what prayer is about and what godly living about is about. Father, you are responsible before God. God holds you to account for the upbringing of your children. It's not the youth work. It's you and I, fathers. 
We are to do what the Lord commands, and it starts in the family. It starts with our wife. It starts with our children. There must be no compromise and no argument. God's covenant promises begin in that family unit. They are grounded there. They become the heart of the gospel right there. Fathers, you are the head of your family. It is you the Lord will hold responsible. Fulfill your calling to your children. It's true in your work life. Ephesians 6 goes on to say, Bond servants, for which we can read employees. Employees, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, your managers, your line managers, your employers. How? With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will serving as to the Lord. What about masters, managers, employers? Do the same things to them. Be exactly like that. Giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, Christian, your family, your, your Christian life doesn't end at the door. Your Christian life goes out of that door. The same life you live in your family should be lived in your workplace. By extension, it carries into university and college and school. Who are you working for? First and most of all, we should be serving and working for the Lord in our family, in our workplace, in our school. So that we do all we do to God's glory. How you live, how you work matters. It's also true finally in church life. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Different roles within the church. And yes, we know that apostles and prophets have ceased with the end of the the apostolic era. We understand that. That becomes very clear with the establishment of the canon of scripture. All we need now is hearing God's word. When your pastor stands and faithfully preaches God's word, he is preaching prophetically. Of course, he is every time he opens up and applies God's word. But the church, nevertheless, has different roles and different offices. And you go to different letters of Paul and you find different lists of the roles within the body. And every one of those roles are needed. The question is this, are you doing your part in the local fellowship here? Or do you leave it to others? That's the easy option, isn't it? We put our feet up. And we kick back. But when the pastor says, it's coming up to Christmas, and some people might think about the gospel, let's get out there with some literature. Or he says, let's go carol singing. Or or, or he says, maybe let's go out in the middle of next year and do some evangelism in the street. And you'll be saying, oh, please, pastor, can I come? Can I come? And I know sometimes you can't come. But I wonder, have you volunteered to be here and help set up the building? Do you play your part by praying faithfully for everybody in the building? (coughs) Praise God, I grew up in a church where there was one elderly lady. I only knew her as Auntie Betty. I couldn't even tell you what her surname was. But I knew one thing about her. Every day, every day she prayed for every single person in the fellowship. Everyone. She did that every day. Are you doing that? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters? Do what God commands and serve in the local fellowship as well. 
Is he pastors and teachers are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for edifying the body of Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ. You need more than a remote sermon. Praise God for the internet. There have been times, haven't there, when we've been grateful to be able to share God's word with one another over the internet. But you need more than that. You can't do church by remote. By definition, you can't do it. The collective, gathered body of God's people is vital. And yes, praise God for great men across the world like Conrad Mabewe and, and the late R.C. Sproul and others whose sermons are out on the internet and we can listen to them and we can rejoice in the teaching of God's word. But it is the men who are here ministering God's word you need to be praying for most. It's their ministry you must be seeking most. It is under the teaching of God's word through them that you must be seeking to be obedient together. So that you grow together. So that you are therefore together imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. One Christian writer wrote this recently, and it struck me. He said this, The world desperately needs strong Christian men, full of courage, virtue, and love. Men who unflinchingly shepherd families, churches, and institutions. Men who plant their flag in the ground for Christ and never look back. And we all need to be like that. Because when we do as God commands at home, at work, Here in the fellowship, may it please God to do his own work, to turn the hearts of many to himself, and indeed to bring the fear of God on many through you, his servants in Solihull, that God may be glorified through you, and to him be all the praise. Amen.